Is it going past their hand? <laughs> it does. So, like, driving is weird. I bet. I bet. The first four people understood. <laughs> That's not that important. Not really I just important. barely nicked that guy. I mean... <laughs> I mean, I've been in, I have been in several accidents, but besides that, it's going great. Jesus declares that on occasion, a storm will come that tests whether our practices are built on a rock or upon the sand. As we find ourselves in the midst of a storm, we unpack five shifts the church must make to ensure our foundation is on the rock. Friends, welcome to episode two of season two of the Disciples Made podcast. This season is called Five Shifts That a COVID-19 World Requires. And this, uh, on this episode, we're going to be bringing in our first guest for season two. Many of you know him. You've heard of him. You've heard of the work that he has been doing. But first, let me just share with you the shift that we're going to talk about before we get him to share a little bit what's going on. We're moving from complex forms of church to simple. And as we try to make clear in our last podcast, we're not talking about Simple Church, the book that came out 10 to 15 years ago. We're not trying to say, pare down the things that you're doing to be less cumbersome or less complicated. We're actually talking about going more toward a New Testament model of ecclesia. This is a conversation involving, you know, our ecclesiology, our study of the church. And so it's exciting for us to be able to welcome onto the podcast one of the innovators in America, the founder, instigator, chief instigating officer, whatever you call yourself, of the Tampa Underground Movement, Mr. Brian Sanders. Brian, welcome. What's up, guys? So glad to have you here. Give us just a quick background of what you're doing right now in ministry and kind of one thing that might differentiate you from other innovators that are seeing multiplication and more simplified forms of church across America. Well, I'm, I'm just recently back in the U.S. I spent two years in Ireland serving our kind of sister movement in Ireland and also churches around Europe. I say churches, that that's sort of a new new gig for me and maybe one of the things that that possibly distinguishes me as a church person uh, is just that we kind of didn't interact with the existing church for about a decade and just tried to experiment a little bit. You know, it's it's my belief or conviction that to do a proper experiment, you need a clinical environment. You know, you need no contaminants, no offense intended. So we were sort of isolated ourselves to some degree to test out some missional ideas in the formation of the church. Like, what could it look like if you had a church form structured, completely biased toward mission and toward the releasing of people in their calling? So that's probably something that influences me, the kind of person I am, the kind of leader I am. I'm back now in the U.S. and finding some some new and interesting places to kind of contribute to the work of God, the mission of God, but still continue to be invigorated by this conversation. And I'm learning, you know, it's, this is uh, the meta skill of the 21st century is learning. You know, it's, it's not what you know, it's if you can learn. And so it's a constant thing for us, isn't it? Mm-hmm. A lot of adapting going on. You know, this, uh, this theme for this podcast is my story intersecting Tampa underground stories, a little micro narrative. I remember more than a decade ago, I was in a very large, successful, complex church and uh i heard from a friend who lived in tampa 
about the Tampa Underground. And I remember finding the website, and I'm like, man, this has got some mystique. What is this thing, man? And it just, it was, it did. It felt like the Matrix. It's like, I got to find out more about this thing. <laughs> and uh, fast forward, you know, eventually reading, you know, Underground Church and eventually having some friend, some mutual friends, and eventually led to Brian Sanders sleeping in my basement. <laughs> good times. Those were good times. You have a good basement. You have a good basement. He Thank does. you. It's not bad. And yeah. uh, and us launching the Kansas City Underground. So I have a deep and profound respect and affection. Really grateful for the uh, secret, hidden, significant obedience and sacrifice. And uh, we stand on your shoulders. I bring you a warm greeting from the Kansas City Underground. And uh, really honored for your time today, man. We're actually in the hub right now. We are. How are you? We're, We're in the Underground hub, the hub, man. Yes. <laughs> well, and look, and we love you guys. And we really just honor the unique work you're doing. Thank and you. I was especially intrigued by you guys because you are more methodical and possibly even um, thoughtful <laughs> than, than, than we would have been. Uh, we're probably a tad bit more haphazard. Uh, and so I'm just like curious and fascinated to watch your journey and your story and, and the unique kind of application of some of these ideas that you guys are pursuing. I think it's going to be a gift, not just to Kansas City, you know, but to the church in America and possibly beyond. So Okay. Love you guys. Thanks for what you're doing. For Thanks. what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Thank you, brother. Well, let me ask you this question. You probably read it. Andre Crouch, probably back in February, I think he wrote an or March. He wrote an article that poised the question, you know, is COVID just a snowstorm? In other words, it's gonna be over quickly. Is it a winter storm or is it actually more of an ice age for the church? So we're nine to twelve months into it. What's your perspective? How would you answer that question and why? Well, I First of all, I think Andy is in the Northeast, so he uses snow metaphors, which are pretty much worthless to those of us that live in Florida. I grew up <laughs> in Chicago and I moved to South Bend. It's a perfect metaphor. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't know if it's an ice age or a snowstorm or it's like unicorns or these are these are all like uh, imaginary <laughs> concepts to us. So I maybe, so how about this? How about I use a Florida metaphor just to kind of tip the scales here? I mean, let's let's say it's more like a hurricane that has like leveled your house. And so so I guess maybe my my perception is that it's more devastating than any of those three metaphors, but temporarily so. So here's let's say it this way. It's like a hurricane came through, it's like totally destroyed your house. And you're standing there on your sidewalk going, This is horrible. And you, you sort of have to grieve the loss of your house, you know, that, that endowment effect, you know, that the value that you put in it because it was yours. But somewhere down the line, could be weeks, could be months, you realize you have insurance. You know, that, that moment where you realize, wait a minute, I'm going to get like $250,000 for this thing, you know, and I kind of can do whatever I want with that money. You know, I was in... Um, uh, last year, yeah, 2019, at the end of the year, I think I was in. I was invited to Christchurch, New Zealand. What a what a place! What a what an extraordinary place that is. And I don't know if you remember this, but in 2011 there was an earthquake, and it just it leveled so much of that city. And so I was there. What eight years later, and I got to sort of witness this new build all over the city. You know, where essentially, you know, 
billions of dollars of insurance money poured into that city. And what it did was it gave the innovators and the creatives and like, it's like an architect's dream. Once you get past the trauma of like, you know, 25% of your city being leveled uh, and possibly losing your own house or business or whatever, you realize you're going to get this big fat check and you've got to figure out what you want to build in place of that other thing. And this was really incredible because I, guys, I saw some of the most innovative, beautiful, incredible design that I've seen in any city in the world. I mean, the architecture of their library right there in the center, just, just like took my breath away. Not just, not just the aesthetics of it, but the actual way that it was set up to reflect the time in which we live. There was all the, I mean, it was, it was like my dream come true in terms of designing a hub. You know, we were talking about that, these sort of, sort of like 21st century, not just co-working, but creative space. And so much of those ideas were there built into that building. But then I had the chance to meet with some churches and there was one church in particular that was sitting on a check. It was like $2 million or $3 million or something like that. And they're like, what do we build? Like, we've got this money, but we've been waiting for years because we know we've got to build something new, but we don't want to build the exact same building we had before. It's like, it, it, it. yes, it's a hurricane. Yes, it's devastating. Yes, you're left with rubble. But the truth is you're insured. You know what I mean? The church is, belongs to God, actually. He's going to take care of it. You're insured. He will rebuild. And then also, it just gives us this incredible opportunity to start over, to do something different, to actually think, okay, what would we build now? Like, I liked my house, but there were things about it that were not perfect. They didn't perfectly fit my family. They didn't perfectly fit the stage of life we were in. Like, there was a little bit too big of this room, and I wish this room would be a little bit smaller. I wish it had this kind of thing. All of a sudden, your, your mind is just burst open with possibilities. That's where I think we are. That's what I think COVID is. I'm not trying to minimize the hardship of it, the trauma of it. I'm really not. I do think that there is this like possibility, this, this moment for the creatives to step in and redesign and rebuild. And it's possible that we'll come back in a few years and look at what we've re, we've built in the place of these this sort of devastated model. And it's it'll be more beautiful than it would have been if we would have just done an incremental change, you know? Yeah, you're, it makes me uh, stop and pause. I love that. I, it's way better than a winter storm. I'm glad you live in Tampa, or you used to. <laughs> and, and so one response would be a delusional response, which would be uh, pretending the hurricane hasn't happened and that your house is still standing. <laughs> yeah. Secondly, um, another one would be, okay, I'm not delusional. My house is gone. But as soon as I get that check, I'm going to rebuild the exact same thing. I'm going to try to make it exactly the same because I just loved it so much. The third option, which made my heart beat faster, is what you just put in front of us. Like, let your missional imagination go wild. And I just want to invite uh, everyone who's listening to this uh, to consider those three options as we ask Brian some questions today about uh, minimal ecclesiology. Yeah, before we jump there, I'm just hoping that the rest of the answers, we're going to ask five different guests that question, and I hope that they are even close to as creative and helpful. You're coming out of the shoot, man. Your answer Strong. there. Yeah, that's the first one. But let me ask you this. I know every metaphor kind of breaks down and isn't perfect, but I'll take a shot at it anyway. What do you think is the big fat check uh, that everybody has? 
because you mentioned everything else. You've got the promise that everything's going to be okay, et cetera. But is there a big fat check that people may not know has already come in the mail that's sitting at their disposal? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think I honestly think part of part of the revelation of the time in which we live is that the church is actually good at change. You know, it's it's this perception that we're this you know, stodgy, institutionalized thing. And, and, and look, uh, on a micro level, like in, a, in one generation, like a 10-year period or something, yes, churches can really struggle with change. And so your, your sort of existential experience of the church could be something that's rigid, intractable, resistant to change. But it, it creates this perception that the church is bad at change. That is just patently false. If you pull back, like, you know, telescopic look at the church, it is it is arguably the most adaptive entity in the history of the human race. So it can adapt to any time, any place, any culture, any era, any trauma, any struggle. It it finds its footing on any ground. You just have to give it enough time. So in that sense, it's almost an argument for the existence of God. You know, it's almost an argument for like, if God were to, if God were to have some sort of spiritual home, spiritual family, spiritual entity, what would it look like? Well, I promise you it would not really look like a human institution. It would look like something which is, I guess the closest thing would be, you know, in biology, what we call a super organism. It cannot be killed. It's, it's, it's indomitable. You know, if you crush it, it just breaks up into smaller pieces and it is often crushed. You know, I'd say that's part of the cycle of the history of the church. It does get crushed. You know, it grows too big. It grows, it becomes more like empire than it is like the kingdom. And so it gets crushed. And those little pieces that it's crushed into, even rifts or schisms within the church, when you look at it over the long period of history, what you actually see is diversity of thought and missional application. So I'm not saying those schisms didn't hurt people and were full of sin and you know, junk. But the end result, kind of like Paul and Barnabas going separate ways over that first initial schism, the end result is creativity and mission, different ways of approaching, and different different kinds of people that can be reached by the two teams that come out of the one. So there's a bro- there's a break, there's a schism. I'm not saying it didn't hurt. It probably did. But over the long haul, the church is just this incredible adaptable thing, which really can't be killed. It finds its form again and again and again, no matter where it's put. So that's the payoff. That's the check. That's the realization that what it means to be insured is really nothing can destroy the church. Nothing can keep God from accomplishing his purposes through his people. Nothing. I love it. Thanks, Brian. And it probably has an awful lot to do with this next question that Rob started to allude to earlier. You have given your life to sticking with a minimal ecclesiology. What does that phrase mean? And why has that been such a priority for you? Well, you know, it's funny in a lot of disciplines, you know, I can think of social science, child psychology, statistics, astrophysics. There's this idea of the Goldilocks principle. You know, that story, like the it's too hot, it's too cold, it's just right. You know, there's this this sort of like the perfect size of a thing or the perfect formation of a thing. Like in, in astrophysics, you have this idea of rare earth, you know, where I suppose if we're just a little bit closer to the sun, life is impossible. You know, if we're just a little bit farther from the sun, life as we know it is impossible. It's like this Goldilocks, we're just right. We're positioned just right. And what's interesting to me is that it's just almost nobody I've seen or read that is asking the question, the Goldilocks principle about the church. No one's asking like, what is the perfect size for the church? And I, 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 it just puzzles me. You know, it's like, even if we were to disagree, even fundamentally, we were disagree. Like I would say 50 and you would say 5,000. Still, why, why can't we have the 
the discussion and what would be the sort of ideal size for the church to be what the church is meant to be. So I would say that, you know, once you answer that question or try to answer that question, then you find suddenly the, the the possibilities are opened up to you that, let me put it this way, I would say that the American pathology is the perfect size church is about 100 people more than we have. <laughs> right? The, 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 the perfect size church is- Give people a chance to all, breathe after that one. <laughs> give, give them a moment. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's like we have built in this inferiority complex to our perception of how the church works. So like, God's never really pleased with us. You know, I'm all for church growth. And I think a lot of Peter Wagner, I think a lot of the stuff that came out of that era was good. It was a drive to see the world know that Jesus loves them, you know. But look, there's there's a shadow cast by that. And the, the funk that it left with us is this sort of ridiculous inferiority complex that like, basically, you're never big enough. So, you know, if you have 100 people, you're just dying for 150 people. Then you'd think, well, then we'd finally not be embarrassed, you know. And then if you have 200 people, you just think, oh, if we only had 300. And it just never ends, does it, Rob? I mean, it's like there isn't the correct size or the big enough size. So I say back that up and say, okay, actually, what is the church? Like answer that. Maybe the most provocative question we can ask in this century is just what actually is the church? What are we trying to plant? What is it meant to be? And you guys know that that I'm and you we both have settled on this sort of three-part worship of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus, community with each other, and expanding of the boundaries of the kingdom through mission. Wherever those three things happen, you're looking at the church. What you're actually what you're actually, you know, you know, considering is is actually an expression of the church. So to me, that could be very small. And then that's liberating. Because like I said, well, if I have 50 people that are doing that, you that's the church. So I don't need to be 500 people. I could be. That's fine. I, I don't need to be 5,000. I could be. That's fine. You know, then it's like th- there's this possibility, not just for growth, but for seeing the church everywhere. What drives my concern for the world or for mission or is, is, is really about compassion. You know, it's like I, I want to fight evil. So everywhere I see evil kind of emerging I just, I yearned for the kingdom there. And then I think, okay, if only there were a group of people who loved Jesus, were committed to each other, and were trying to bring light or hope or life into that place, that context. And guess what? That's the church. We're describing the church. So I want I want it to be everywhere. And every, everywhere it can't be the alleys, the cracks, the crevices, the, the little niche tribes that exist everywhere all over the world. So I think that's what, that's what kind of, that's what's behind this minimal ecclesiology. But the truth is, it's just a philosophical construct, isn't it? It's just like saying, what do you think that if you stripped it all away and you were left with fill in the blank, you would say that's a church? You could have a hundred things. I don't know what your, yours could be nine or six or four or 12, but you have a minimum. Everyone does, right? And once you can figure out what that minimum is, you could start planting that. You could release that. And until you answer that question, you're just left with this horrible inferiority complex. We're never complex enough. We're never doing enough. We're not covering enough issues. We're not you know, meeting enough needs. We don't have enough people. We don't have enough money, whatever it is. And I just think that's really counterproductive. And of course, people who are in church leadership know also it's kind of like soul destroying over the long haul, you know. You know, what you're talking about is the potential of opening up the floodgates. When a form of church is very complex, uh, requires a very particular type of leadership to lead something large and complex. And suddenly it's a very small number of people who can, quote unquote, plant a church or, quote unquote, 
pastor church, I take issue with both of those things. But what you're talking about is a form or expression of church where suddenly millions and millions and millions of God's people uh, can be fully engaged in leading. It's also very expensive too, isn't it? So it is. like that, that approach... Uh, not only requires a kind of elite class of people that can lead it, but it also ex- it, it requires extreme expenditure of mm-hmm. capital. And I would say that that has also hindered us, you yeah. know, in terms of just, if you just want to see the glory of God cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, and you think somehow the people of God and the church is somehow connected to that outcome, then we need something that like you said, releases more people and maybe it just doesn't cost as much money, Yeah, you know? Yeah, no kidding. Um, and to the point of the podcast is not as vulnerable to the storm. Mm-hmm. I mean, we started last week by, yeah. you know, quoting that verse about right. how Jesus kind of says two things, you know, don't start building a tower unless you've got a plan. But when you do it, build it on the rock. Build it on the rock because the storm's coming. Not if a storm comes, the storm's coming. It's very helpful. I think there's been a revelation of how fragile the complex form of church is. Simple things reproduce easily. They tend not to be fragile. Like you have a rock. <laughs> you, got, uh, 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 you, got to, you got to bang that thing really hard to break it, right? So here's a question. It's been our experience during covid that a lot of church leaders who might have seen microchurch as a novelty are now considering it as perhaps a necessity. And thousands of church leaders are seriously considering what it would look like to have a minimal ecclesiology in their context. So two questions. Um, you know, what do you find exciting about that? But also, what concerns do you have? Let's say there's someone right now who's been leading a more complex form of church and they're ready to just jump in and launch... 10 microchurches tomorrow. What's the upside of that? What are the potential dangers? Like what cautions would you give them? Well, I mean, I don't tend to be overly cautious as a person. So it's it's not the greatest person to ask the question, but I just think, you know, throw caution to the wind, just do it because it's right. You know, I guess one of the things that that concerns me is, is that maybe people would enter into a change like this tactically, you know, that it's essentially forced upon them or they just think, oh, this is, this is the new thing. You know, this is the this is the trending strategy for the church. So I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in because I'm relevant or because I'm aware of the signs of the times or something like that. But it's not really like a theologically driven change. So so there's there's two ways in which that will fail or get shipwrecked. One is an interior reality, which is like you're not actually moved or committed. You're, it's not a repenting an act of repentance, which it should be, I actually think. Not to say you're some evil person because you you participate in this other form of church, but because you think, you know what, Lord, we have forgotten some things and we're sorry. It's a return. It's a return. So there's that internal work that has to happen. If it doesn't happen, it probably will be shipwrecked. The endeavor will be shipwrecked. But the other thing is the external realities. If you if you try to integrate a change like this into the old system without being kind of honest with yourself about change the change management process and all work of change management is about managing resistance dealing with the realities of resistance right uh, but the truth is people are not really afraid of change they're afraid of loss and so they'll, they'll fight against an innovation or change no matter how inevitable it seems i mean you could convince them intellectually 
uh, that this is the right thing to do, even theologically, but they'll they'll push against it. I mean, all organisms all organisms have immune systems, right? And the immune systems attack the contaminant, the foreign idea. And innovation is a foreign idea. Innovation is a threat to the existence existing system. I think in, in like organ transplant nomenclature, it's called graft versus host disease. You know, where the where the organ doesn't take. You know, it's meant to save your life because like, look, your liver's gone, you know, so we have to give you a new liver. So we put it in there. But sometimes the body just goes, this isn't a liver. This is like a, a toxin and it attacks the liver and kills the host, you know. And so I think that there has to be a certain amount. of. I'm concerned that there has to be a certain amount of work done both internally to think about the theology of the thing you're trying to lead people to and even the emotional quality of it, you know. But then also this external assessment that has to be made, can my church handle this? You know, there's something we've put together called a missional readiness assessment. And I, I think this is out there. Like if you go to bravefuture.com or org, I don't know, uh, there's a little thing that says MRA light. And there's like, it's just an assessment that we created to help churches figure out to do a kind of survey and, and give themselves a score essentially as to whether or not the environment that they're in is what I would call mission averse, mission indifferent, mission conducive, or mission rewarding. Those would be like the four categories that we score. But the truth is, if you try to bring these ideas of something like microchurch into a mission averse environment, it will destroy the microchurches. So if you launch five, the rest of the system will eat them alive. And then this is the worst thing of all. Then people will say, yeah, we tried that. It didn't work. Yeah, we tried that, but nah, that doesn't, that obviously is a failed model because it didn't work. Well, you know, it, it's, you can't, you can't plant seeds and cement, you know, I mean, just that's, that part of it is that assessment. Super helpful. So Brian, I've got a question to throw at you that it's going to start with a little bit of a kind of a statement. It's not on our list of questions. And it's one of these questions that's going to be a little bit more difficult of a conversation for some of our folks to hear. If I was to answer the question that Rob asked, like, what are the fears? Uh, one of mine would be, you're asking people to step in and do something that you probably haven't properly discipled them to do. I'm more on the how do you develop cultures within a church to reproduce disciples and, and Rob and Brian Johnson, one of the other guys on our team, are more into the micro church expertise and, and all that all that stuff. So in my observations of them, I'm like the best people to launch a missional community that becomes a micro church, uh, whatever the phases are called really has everything to do with how well you discipled a person into that role. It's not a, there. these people are so much ready to go. Maybe you have some, but that's one of my biggest concerns. So with that answer is a little bit of context. One of the things that I've seen happen a lot in response to COVID is people changing the term life group into micro church and saying, as long as you're doing some up and some in and some out, you know, to use 3DM or a bunch of other different type of language. As long as you're doing those, you have a microchurch. I love the enthusiasm. <laughs> I love... Do you really? I, I, I do. Like... <laughs> I mean, the, the, op, the option is to re, is just to only see the, the house that's gone down, right? Or are you suspicious? And there's no, well, there's that part too. You know, I'm looking at it going, we're really doing our best to save the old house still. We need to put some new paint on it. And the question that I have here is, what's at stake in doing that? Hmm. 
Like, what are the inherent risks that these leaders may not have considered? I mean, like, go down the road. We're, we talked about, like, what's COVID been? It's a storm, blah, 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 blah. But now we're asking, okay, for the folks that have made that shift, what have they irretrievably possibly done that they might want to consider as they go forward? Well, not, not to be snarky, but I, I, would, I would just start by saying what they risk is not greater than what they risk by not doing this. So, so we, we have to acknowledge that both ignoring this approach and continuing on as we were is also risky. And I'm not naive. You know, I know that if we, if we hand leadership of the church to ordinary people, with varying degrees of maturity, and as you as you put it, sort of just preparation, discipleship preparation, you're going to see a spectrum, aren't you? You're going to see a continuum of not just quality, but fruit. You know, so it, it, it you know it's incumbent on people like me to sort of tell the story, the shining examples of microchurches that bear fruit and you know address serious social problems and see real disciples made and multiply and glorify God and don't cost any money. And But for every one of those, there might be two or three that sort of screw up or hurt people or fail or whatever you want to call it, or, or just last a short period of time and nothing comes of it. I guess I'm just in the camp, guys, that, that would say that what we risk if we don't try this, if we don't really hand over control to the people is is far more chilling and frightening because what what we actually risk is decline so steep that we cease to exist you know and i i would i would say part of what comforts me in that risk and again i'm not denying it you know but part of what comforts me in that risk is the idea of the headship of jesus over his church a more cynical person could say that that some of the, the expressions of church that we've seen to this point are a kind of decapitated version of the church. You know, it's it's human enterprise, and human ingenuity, and human resources. And Jesus is just not, he has been severed. You know, the head has been severed from the body, not conceptually or theologically, but practically severed. Like he is not the person calling the shots on a daily basis. And I do think in these in these smaller, more loosely led and more lay kind of construction of the church, all you've got is Jesus. All you've got is the spirit of God in that person to protect them from error or sin or harm. Like you've really got to believe in that. You've really got to trust that. And I do, I do deeply and fundamentally believe that the spirit of God deposited in us is a guide, is that paraclete. But having said that, I also have great respect for sin in us because I've also seen just horrific examples of when you, so I get it. You know, I get why people would say, can we, can we not really run people through a very thorough thing so that they don't end up being like this? But here's the trick, Brian, even when we do that, we still get disasters at the end. You know what I mean? So it's probably just a choice we make. It's risk assessment. It's a choice we make somewhere in that continuum, like how, how comfortable we are with risk. And I think that's also part of why we want to look at the church as a super organism and look at even our friendships, you know, like our little networks around the countries and around the world. We're going to have different sort of tolerance levels 
for that kind of risk. Some of us will just ordain people because you smiled and you said you love Jesus. So go for it. You know, others are going to be more thorough in their training and stuff. And I think we need that. We want to see how'd that go? How'd that go? What are the results of that? What are the results of this? And in the end, in the end, I think we, we both will be left with like, look, we can't lead this thing anyway. We have to believe in the presence of God in his people. Fabulous, fabulous answer. It seems to me that if I was to ask a follow-up question to that, like what's the one thing a church leader needs to do to mitigate whatever risks are involved, it sounds like you would say build a disciple-making relationship that helps them more effectively tune in to the leadership of Jesus through the Spirit and have themselves of a community of at least two others in pursuit of that with them that they can have for accountability and support. Would that be? Well, and you, and, and you guys know this, I'm, 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 I'm a big believer in governance. I think we have to create new governance structures around this organic style this networked version of the church. So you, yes, you have a sort of autonomous, empowered expressions of the church. We could call them microchurches, missional communities, whatever. But then you need a, a, a sort of corollary governance structure, which, which is there for those people in time of crisis or error or sin. I think if we, if we fail to do that back-end work, well— then again, the, the model will not be, well, it's not even a model, but that, that approach to the church will not be fairly assessed— you know what I mean? It, 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 it's going to need that. We need that sort of infrastructure support or we, we're not going to make it. I like it. Hey, Brian Phipps, I got to make this one comment. Do it. I don't know how many times I've said this in different conversations. Uh, I think it's chapter six in Underground Church. It's entitled Governance. <laughs> Boy, that sounds, I can't wait to get to that chapter. Oh, oh man, it's going to be. Nail biter. <laughs> but I'm telling you, that was the chapter that, and I finally felt like someone helped me see the way forward. And I do think this microchurch uh, governance is one of the key areas where it's going to rise or it's going to fall. With the wrong structure, hmm. it'll crush it. With the wrong structure, it'll just be a wildfire that burns out. Um, but the Well, and, and fundamentally, we're t what we're talking about is a dual operating system, right? It's that you need a kind of governance entity that looks after the empowered, released, organic side of things. So you, you need both. You mm -hmm. and 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 that maybe is a part of the innovation that we're stumbling on here mm -hmm. is that, you know, we have seen house church movements which which sort of fan the flames of the organic and the empowerment, but they last about 10 years and then they burn out because of sin, because of breakdown, because of entropy, you know. And so and then we've seen hierarchies that that sort of go on and on and on, but they lose their spirit. You know, mm -hmm. they they drift from their mission or whatever. So we are going to need to whatever it looks like, it will be probably this dual operating system. Very cool. As a person who used to manage, you know, a couple hundred different life groups, we had coaches and team leaders, managers, and all these other different levels of that uh, infrastructure that you're talking about to try to serve all of our small group leaders. And what I realized is it was a management structure, not a mentoring structure. And people were disinterested in the accountability, in the support. It's almost like they didn't, even if they had a crisis, they wouldn't call on the person that was appointed to them because it wasn't there. But I'm trying to imagine, and I'll invite other people on the, on the call to try to imagine, what if all of those were disciple-making relationships that were strong uh, spiritual arteries 
between souls, people that had invested in people and that have invested in people. It's like we've, we've got the picture. We just need to take the long-term effort in order to build those relationships and release people out. That's I think that's what I would chase after. Brian, you have been such a gracious person to spend your time and come on and be with us, and you've shared great wisdom and insight. We're so thankful. I feel like a student. I'm sitting here taking notes on the <laughs> things that you've been saying, so I'm really grateful for that. If you come back next episode, we're going to be talking about how to move from professionals to all of God's people, which really does pick up right here Mm -hmm. where we've left off. You know, we kind of uh, have appointed, we've got, we've got pastors, we've got what some call laity, and we've created this thing in the middle called a small group leader. (laughs) What if we didn't have laity or small group leaders? What if we were all missionaries? Join us next time. Brian, thanks again. Thanks, guys. We hope that what you heard today was an encouragement to you or that it increased your curiosity in making disciples that make disciples. If you'd like to learn more about our experiences or set up a coaching call, you can visit us at disciplesmade.com or email podcast at disciplesmade.com.